if we're talking about, you know, healing ourselves and our planet and our relationships, we have to figure out these ways of being with each other that aren't about controlling behavior or speech that aren't about kind of this addiction to being sure, but are about actual freedom, you know, and, and relationship. Citizen Podcast. Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. With us today is Mickey Scott Bay Jones, also known as the Justice Doula. She is an author, speaker, facilitator, and the director of healing and resilience initiatives with the Southern based collective Faith Matters Network. And one of the gifts she has given the movement is a practice called Brave Space which is exactly what happens between us on this podcast as we dig into the in-between spaces in our relationships and movements. So often we hear about safe space, the promise of a judgment and harm-free environment. But is that even possible? Mickey is calling us to a different practice, one where we can bravely risk mistakes, call each other to more truth and love, and co-create a space where we each have the room to grow as activists while still being accountable to one another. In our conversation, she talks about how if we want to work towards the abolition of systems of harm and oppression, we actually need to practice that with one another. Mickey embodies what it is to walk the talk and live into her values. It is an invitation for all of us to hold the complexity of this work and be brave together. Check it out. Welcome, Mickey Scott Bay Jones. Hi, so glad I'm to be so with you. So excited you're here. Um, <laughs> you know, you are you are a person. I think I publicly quote more than any other person, like more than anyone else <laughs> on the planet, Mickey, um, because of how mm. formative. Uh, brave space has been to to my life and to my work, and I'm I'm sure that everyone and anyone listening to this podcast right now has heard me speak about brave space, which is really a concept that that you originated. So I would love everyone's heard me describe brave space a million times, but I would love to hear it from you. Like what what is brave space, and how did it emerge? So I think about this all the time and I'm so glad that people talk about this and use it. I mean, I get um, texts and emails and DMs all the time about how people are using the poem, An Invitation to Brave Space, um, that I created. And then uh, the concept as well, everything from the beginning of a worship service uh, in their congregation to a, um, you know, uh, the, the framework setting of a meeting um, to educational um, uses, you know, getting teenagers together to write their own versions of this poem. And I love it. Like that is my dream for what would happen is that these this collection of thoughts, of lines, of words would be something that would 
inspire people to think about the spaces we're creating together. And because that's how it came up for me. It came up because I was thinking about how we engage in the work of, of justice, of co-creating a better world together, of um, fighting oppression. Like I was thinking about all of that. And I just, I was, I was, it, it came out of, frustration about some of the Mm -hmm. things I was thinking about, Uh, you know, Mm -hmm. like I needed people to step up. Right. So that's why it's kind of, um, that's why it's, it's like, we're, this is not about perfection, you know, like, let's just give that up as someone who tends toward being a perfectionist. I was like, all right, (laughs) right. Like that's gotta go. Um, also understanding that, that whiteness it calls us to perfection, right? Like if you're not going to do it right, don't do it at all. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. We're going to do it and we're going to be messy. And, um, and the higher value is that we're going to do it together. And, you know, that we all have something to learn. Um, even when we're talking about, you know, the privileges that we carry, um, that, you know, very rarely, is any of us are any of us that are in the West, um, a purely like marginalized person Mm -hmm. or a purely privileged person, right? You know, like we are all kind of dealing with where we're placed in this system, unless we're kind of like a super wealthy white man, like Jeff Bezos might not, right? (laughs) you know, like, it, it, it is in a different category altogether, right? But the rest of us are kind of coming to whatever situation we're in with with things that we need to mm-hmm. learn and, and also things we need to like check in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to just put it, I want to like, oh. I want to um, yeah. emphasize that for a minute because that feels really, yeah. you know, this has become one of our community agreements that we build into everything we do for exactly the reason yeah. that you just named, right? Because- it speaks to the difference between, well, it speaks to the difference between brave space and safe space, but mostly it speaks to to power and control. Like who gets to set the terms of how we be together, of what it means to be safe, whose safety is normalized, who causes harm. Um, And there's something, I I feel like you're calling people to skill and to a level of self-awareness to one's proximity to power and privilege that does allow us to be together in a different way. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly it. And because what I think, what I was seeing with, you know, what we call safe spaces is a lot of um, focus on the container itself, right? So a lot of focus on how do we somehow create this magical environment <laughs> where, uh, you know, like our feelings aren't going to get hurt and nobody's ever going to say the wrong pronoun and, People are going to um, already be super woke in the space. And if we're actually going to organize people and organize people at different points in their journey, we're going to have to make some room for people whose politics are still not where maybe us as leaders or organizers would want their politics to be. Um, like we have to also have room for the things we don't know, mm-hmm. um, and the places where we still need to grow. Mm-hmm. So that's really where this idea came from. Cause I think sometimes 
it feels like the way safe space has evolved or like our understanding of that is that it's somehow going to be free of lots of fucking up of lots of um, like (laughs) bad, like there's going to be some like bad attitudes and bad beliefs and, you know, and judging of each other's place where we are and all of that. And we can't like, we can't really like prevent that from happening, but what, what pathways do we have to actually work through Mm -hmm. that as we're still trying to do the work of social Mm -hmm. change? And so that's where it comes from is like, we actually have to welcome people in their messiness to continue to do this work of social change. And I think that's what, like, if we actually listen to our elders and, and kind of, you know, read their stories and dig into that, like the civil rights, uh, you know, movement, the Southern freedom movement was a hot mess. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love actually reading about it and how much of a hot mess it was. But I think our sanitized ver- version is right, like that everybody had the same politics and it was at least in, in a different groups, right? Like, right. Like, you know, if you were in SNCC, you all thought the same things and kind of right. worked really well together. And there were only like some of those big issues that we hear about. But like, no, it was pretty yeah. messy, you know? And it's okay if we're also messy. Um, and we have to figure out some ways to do that. So let's just put all that out on the front end, yeah. right? Like we're going to try and be brave and like, um, you know, we're going to talk about what we don't know and yeah, we're going to be, you know, we're going to have some because we can't not be political. Right. Like we're just going to do some messy stuff. That doesn't mean we allow for bad behavior. I think that's sometimes where I get pushback mm-hmm. is like, Oh, no, 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 no. This now means that people just get to come in here and act a fool and do whatever they want and, you know, and not respect my pronouns and not respect who I am as a person and say all kinds of crazy things up in here to me and la, la, la. And that is not what I'm saying at Mm -hmm. all. You know, we still 100% protect those who need protecting. We still have standards. We still have ethics about how we treat one another. Um, but we're committed to doing this work together with everyone who is committed to doing that work. When someone's behavior shows they're clearly not committed to that work, then of course they are not allowed to be a part of the work together. They, there might be another way they can do mm-hmm. it, but they are not going to be able to continue in this space right now. So I think somehow doing that, which is a lot messier than just having rules that if the person breaks that rule, they're booted out forever. You see what I'm saying? It's so, it's so dynamic and requires us to be deep in it with each other. And that I think is what feels really vulnerable and difficult but that's just how it is. This is vulnerable and difficult. It also work. feels like the humanizing of the work in some way. Like I, I feel like you're, you know, you could call this the human space. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because to be human yeah. is to be messy. To be human is to make mistakes. To be human is to not know everything. Um, to be human is to impact one another, right? Like, like, like I don't yeah. like. It's not possible. The way that I often talk about safe space when I'm I'm kind of negating the idea of safe space is that it's actually a promise we can't make, because we can't right. guarantee what safety means for people. 
Um, and when we, right. and I love what you, I love the way you described it as like a magical environment, right? That as if like it was possible for an environment to be neutral, to be apolitical, to be free of harm, um, in an environment that's holding humans, right? Where it's inherently human that we impact each other, right? And that we're impacted right. by each other. Anyway, so I, th that's the other thing that's coming up for me as you describe what this is, is that it's a, it's a commitment to being deeply human, yeah. Which takes courage, right? That's really brave to be, it's not only like brave to step out and say something, it's brave to hold yourself back, to like withhold yeah. something you want to say, because in that moment, maybe what you need to do is listen, or maybe what you need to do is wait to see if it's a place where you can bring your whole self. Like there, there it's not, you know, um, I'm not saying you have to act in these ways to be brave. In fact, I'm saying, What's brave is to be super in touch with yourself in that moment and, and to bring that instead of coming with a set of behaviors and actions and words that you're, some, that, that you're supposed to perform in the mm. space. Instead, we're going to really listen to ourselves and we're going to listen to the room and we're going to continue to be dynamic. And that to me takes a courage that we don't often bring to spaces because that's just not how our culture is set up. That's not how Western culture is set up. It's set up about performance and perfection and let's get in and out and, you know, timely. And that's just not movement work at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's always going to take longer and be messier than we thought it was going to be. And so let's just go ahead and admit yeah, that. Yeah, it's funny because like when I'm in space now, because um, because like performance allyship and optical allyship is so up right now. Um, and is some, and in some ways I feel like people are demanding it of people. Like you have to have the right words mm -hmm. and you, and to your point, you can't ever make a mistake. And, and often beca because of, um, the way I've leaned into this practice of brave space, I now ask myself, like, what is it, what would it look like for me to be vulnerable right now in this mm -hmm. space? Like what is vulnerability in this particular context, right? And how can I show up as my, my most skillful human self, not the self that needs to signal and credential myself as the most woke white person in the room, <laughs> right? Not the self right. that, because I know that that in some ways is a manifestation of whiteness, as you said before, but, but the self that's here to, to be in relationship. Right. And I just, you know, again, the thing that I, where I get some pushback from folks, um, is often from people who have been wounded mm -hmm. in spaces who have been hurt and abused. Uh, and I have too. And, but sometimes I've, I, I've experienced that, um, hurt in spaces that were supposed to be safe, right. Even in black queer spaces that were, that, we all are supposed to already know how to treat each other um, or, you know, oh, this is this faith rooted movement space. And so we all adhere to these things or whatever. Like I belong to a lot of different kinds of groups and have gotten hurt in many of them. And I think, so my particular social location, I, I have yet to experience a space where I have felt 100% mm -hmm. safe. Like there is always a moment where someone can say something that is particularly painful to me. Um, and sometimes that's on purpose and sometimes it just happens. And so that's why for me, this framework 
works because I safety isn't the number one thing I expect. Um, you know, even the people that are absolutely closest to me have hurt me. And I don't necessarily expect them not to. What I expect is for them to want to repair that and to to do the work to repair whatever harms happen. And I expect the same of myself, knowing that sometimes we can't even do that, mm. right? Like sometimes we don't even have the skill or, um, you know, the energy to do that repair work, but that would be the goal. And so that's, I think for me, why I step away from safe space, because I'm never, I don't think I'm, that that's a thing that I can ever be truly safe. I can, I can expect, you know, ways of repair, which again, requires us to be brave, to be courageous. And, and to me, that's kind of the best we can do as human beings. That may not be everybody's experience. I know some people do have spaces where they feel like I am entirely safe here. I can do and say and be everything in this space. But I think even in those spaces, you're taking a risk because you don't know if the next thing you're going to do is going to be okay with everybody or with that person. You don't know if they're going to accept you. You don't know if they're going to say something or look at you in a way that might hurt you. Like we just never know. So let's, so I don't, for me, that just, that framework of just total safety doesn't work. Um, And, and I'm mostly talking about emotional safety, of course, right? Like I'm not talking about physical safety. I don't think anybody should ever be in a situation where they're afraid people are going to physically Mm -hmm. hurt them. Um, But emotional safety is just so much more precarious. It's so much more moment by moment. And it's going to happen in spaces with people that we, that we both are unfamiliar with and that we're super close to sometimes even more with people that we're close to the family dinner table. Right. Oh my gosh. Um, Mickey, would you, would you read us the poem? Sure. I would love to. An invitation to brave space. Together we will create brave space because there is no such thing as a safe space. We exist in the real world We all carry scars and we have all caused wounds. In this space, we seek to turn down the volume of the outside world. We amplify voices that fight to be heard elsewhere. We call each other to more truth and love. We have the right to start somewhere and continue to grow. We have the responsibility to examine what we think we know. We will not be perfect. This space will not be perfect. It will not always be what we wish it to be. But it will be our brave space together. And we will work on it side Mm. by side. So powerful. You know, it's funny because I, in a moment where there's so much pressure to do I feel like what you're speaking to is how we be, how we be together. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it's funny because in some ways um, it's becoming more necessary that 
we learn how to work together, right, towards liberation and justice, and simultaneously it's becoming more precarious as things um, as things are getting uncovered, right, as Adrienne Marie Brown says, right, things are yeah. things are being revealed um, that are making it even messier, that are making our spaces even hotter. Um, and so I'm curious, you, you named before um, the ability to move towards um, repair, right? How like when we create brave spaces, not that it guarantees repair, but maybe it um, increases our capacity to allow for the possibility of repair. And so I'm curious, like in this moment, what are some of the things that you're learning um, or that you're noticing about, about harm and about repair? In, in collective space? Mm. I have uh, a, a chalkboard right by my front door. And uh, I sometimes will write things on it. But for, I don't know, probably over a year now, it has said the same thing because I can't stop thinking about it. And it says, practice makes possible. Mm. And... I think we are being um, invited to practice different ways of doing things. Again, not things that have never been done before, uh, because there's very little that I think hasn't ever been done before. But are there ways, you know, now that we're talking about abolition and abolishing the police um, and like we also have to talk about new systems or different systems. And that I think in some ways feels scarier than abolishing old ones because we, you know, most of us have particular things deeply ingrained in us, right? Like we can talk about abolishing the police, but really we're so in love with punishment culturally mm that we do not know how to replace punishment and, and uh, the system of policing and, um, and prisons is just a form of punishment. Right. But we don't know how to raise our children without punishment. You know, like that is revolutionary. Um, We don't know how to be in relationship with each other without punishment. And so to like practice new ways of interacting with each other that don't include punishment is super hard work. And it's a lot of work because, you know, we're just so used to it. It's in everything we think about. You like, oh, I'll have a piece of cake after dinner, right? Because I have to punish myself by not having the cake if I didn't eat my vegetables during dinner. Mm -hmm. All that's a, that's punishment Mm -hmm. thinking. Well, right. Because it's also reward thinking. So how, like how we're like, if we're thinking about all these new systems, wouldn't it be interesting to think about other ways to relate to each other and to practice those other ways, right? Of, of re- how do we repair that doesn't include punishment, but it's about something else. It's about how we, you know, how all sides come out more healed, mm-hmm. how the community comes out more healed. Um, and I don't know how to do any of this stuff. You know, I've practiced some things here and there with people but I don't know how to, I don't know how to scale it up yet. Mm-hmm. I just know that we can, the only way we're going to figure out how to scale it up is to try it, to practice it, 
with each other. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work, especially during this pandemic, when we are being called to work harder than ever to expose the inequities of our systems and advocate for the policies that take care of everyone. We could not keep going without you. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness. And we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But we can't do it alone. And building this community on Patreon is our way of sustaining this work in relationship and in accountability with you. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you help us create content and resources that matter to this moment. And you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live community meetups, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. Please join us at patreon.com slash citizenwell. When you started talking about abolition, uh, and I think you're right, you know, I think... Um, I think I think it's hard to see what's next, right? What's beyond what what has been so familiar to us, um, what has protected and benefited many of us, right? Um, it's hard to know what lies mm -hmm. beyond that, and to let our imagination, you know, um, let our imagination really um, expand, right, into the unknown. But when I think about evolution, I also, I don't just think about systems of punishment. I think about systems of control. Like I was thinking about like yeah. how abolition also calls for the dismantling and deconstructing of supervision, right? Like of all sorts yeah. of systems that control bodies and, um, and how, and, and I was just thinking, and how like the, how control is an illusion, like we're actually not in control and how we have to decolonize our minds and unhook ourselves from that addiction too. Mm -hmm. Like we are not in, yeah. and, it, and it just pointed me right back to your poem, actually, Mickey. I was like, brave space is also mm -hmm. a letting go of control. Mm -hmm. It's deeply internal. There's an external brave space, but there's an internal brave space that we're cultivating if we're, if we're committed to that kind of, you know, framework. And so, you know, if we're talking about, you know, healing ourselves and our planet and our relationships, we have to figure out these ways of being with each other that aren't about controlling behavior or, or speech that aren't about, you know, kind of this addiction to being sure, um, but are about actual freedom, you know, and, and relationship, but Again, since childhood, that's not how we're conditioned in most spaces, right? Sometimes there are people who, um, who are raised and who grow up very much outside of any kind of mainstream, um, but it, those people are pretty rare. 
So for many of us, no matter how much work we've done around this, like we still have places where we have to, um, you know, release ourselves and where we have to continue to grow and be, um, be willing to look at what we're still adhering to in our, in our minds, you know, not a lot. I mean, I mean, that doesn't even touch our behavior, but we're usually doing it in both spaces. Yeah. Yeah. And now you have me thinking about, um, well, you have me thinking about a couple things. Like, of course my mind is going to cancel culture. Um, and, and it's also going to, um, you know, righteous anger and rage <laughs> that has a, mm-hmm. a real valid place in this moment. And that, and that is often, um, necessary, right. To, to unearth and expose the harm that's done. Um, and then I'm thinking about accountability, right? I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm kind of all over the place, but I, I feel like this is brave yeah. space that's happening right now <laughs> between in this yeah. in this conversation because it's like our spaces need to hold the rage, right? Yeah. That's historical and and, and deeply valid um, and and righteous, um, and it needs to hold accountability. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just say that because I, I, I see like a lot of what's happening in culture right now is sort of this binary between like either cancel culture is right or it's wrong, right? Anger is right or it's wrong. Um, accountability has to be a certain way. And, and I'm just thinking about like, what does it look like to let go of control of that? Sort of like right back to what you had just said, like, how do we not control how it happens, but just allow for what people need to express, so that we can move mm-hmm. towards accountability. And, yeah, and I think we have very few non-toxic models of accountability. You know, I I um, w- became involved with evangelical Christianity as a teenager. And so, you know, a model of accountability that I learned through that was very toxic and controlling. And uh, very much behavior modification um, and even thought policing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I feel like when I've seen recently, um, several kind of, you know, people being called to accountability, um, in different spheres of my life. Um, uh, one example was, or one experience, uh, there was very little kind of like, these are the things you need to do to repair, or at least this is what I think you need to do to repair. And then in another one, there was more, there was, there was more of that. There was more of kind of this, you need to do this, this, and this. Um, We expect these kinds of things. And to me, at least that felt like a step closer, right? It felt like that was practicing something that could open up more Mm -hmm. possibilities um, because there was some direction there. It wasn't just, hey, look at this person who did something bad. Um, and I do think, I think we need all of it, like you're saying. We need to be able to express our anger and our um, rage and calling out the things that have been done over many years, um, calling out harm that's been done. And... Um, I think for those of us who are committed to narratives of redemption, that people can change, 
that we have to figure out ways for that to actually happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like we actually have to uh, come up with ways we're going to hold that process for people. And I think that's the part that we're still really lacking and, and haven't really figured out unless it's happening in very particular ways. Right. So, you know, you might have restorative justice in schools, but I have not seen that among like individual relationships or in a community, you know, because it's like, who do you pay to do that work of holding the container? Who, like who's, and who pays for that? Right. If it's, happening, say you have just your local organizing group that organizes for racial justice, right? Nobody's getting paid. Who holds that? How do you actually have a professional or somebody who has, you know, the skill set or whatever, like they're putting in labor then to help two or three or five people repair something. Who, who holds that and who gets paid for it or who gets compensated in some way if it's not pay? And how are we really interested in a five-year process or a one-year process that then when somebody messes up again is started all over again? I mean, we just don't have, in, in my circles at least, what I'm seeing is that just kind of falls off even if it starts well. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to figure that out. And I, th- I honestly think though, one of the things that's going to help us um, is that we have to slow down. Like we have to have time for the anger and the rage, right? Like let everybody say the things they want to say. And, and we're not, we don't police that people get to say, have all their feelings. Um, like I tell my children, you're allowed to have all your feelings. Your feelings are, are yours and they are valid. Um, but Susan David says, feelings are data, not facts. Mm. We get to have all the feelings. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't have to recognize your feeling as a fact as, as far as how it relates to the thing that was done, but you absolutely get to have your feelings about Mm -hmm. it. We can sort through facts of what happened much Mm -hmm. later, but we get to have the feelings right now. Whenever you become awake to the feelings that the facts, that the thing that happened did to you, you get to have those feelings. And I think it's also important then that we're not like, we don't have to wrap things up immediately. And I think that's part of the reason we have difficulty is because something comes to light. People come forward and say, this terrible thing happened and this person is responsible. And we demand a response out of the community or the person immediately on Twitter, the second that this is, you know, like, yes, you need to have your, you know, um, statement on how this person was terrible, and how you're going to fix it within the next 10 minutes, or else you obviously don't care about this, uh, this subject and about this person. And, you know, I don't actually think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think when we can have some time and realize that sometimes people are finding out about something for the first time when they see your tweet or when they, or or when it comes out publicly in whatever way, or people need time to process that those people are having emotions too, um, that it takes time to assemble community around some, like all of this takes a little bit of time and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. You know, with one of these recent situations, um, you know, I saw this this leader take 
probably two weeks to kind of respond and say, now this is how I'm going to move forward. Um, you know, I've decided that I'm going to leave this organization, which means that now the organization has to shut down. But they took their time in responding. And their response was really, really thoughtful. And I, I, you know, and, you know, it looks like there's some systems of accountability being put in place. And um, I don't know if the harm can be repaired, but it looks like there's at least some um, possibilities for learning and growth and pivoting. And, you know, just there just are some possibilities that have opened up because there was some time allowed to make the next Mm -hmm. move. And I, and I really think that if we're going to build new systems, that, that, that has to be possible. You're reminding me of, you know, Adrian Marie Brown, has said that accountability is how we how we call each other into community. It's not how we call each other out of community. It's actually it actually is saying that like um, y- your contribution matters, which is why I'm telling you the truth of your harm. Um, and by doing that, I'm actually calling you in to to yeah. belong, to become a part of community. And and I feel like the um, the framework that you're describing, and I really just appreciate that you said like we have very few non-toxic systems or frameworks for accountability right now, because um, I, I think I do I think that's true, right? Like we have a lot of examples of calling out, which by the way, as a white woman in this work, I really appreciate. Like when people call me out, um, it is it is it is more often than not um, revealing what I can't see. <laughs> about my behavior, mm-hmm. right? About my consciousness, about harm that I may have caused. And so there's a gift in that, right? There's a gift yeah. uh, and there's labor certainly on the side of folks who are, are, are doing the lifting, right? Of making people aware of their harm. Um, and I hear you saying that like, rarely is there a what's next. Like if we're calling people into community, then what is, what is the process by which, um, we move forward with people or not, right? Or choose not to move forward with people um, towards, towards a, a community that, um, that is less harmful, right, to the many. Right. But our only option can't be just throwing people away. And I think that if we're actually going to be abolitionists, then we, like throwing people away is not an option we have. It's just not an option. And, you know, I've been, uh, I don't know if you follow Miriam Kaba yes. on Twitter, <laughs> you know, seeing all of her tweets lately about being so frustrated with kind of how our only answer is to call for more imprisonment or more, you know, essentially like locking people away forever, whether we're locking people away in a prison or whether we're locking people out of like our, our worlds or whatever, like, uh, but to say that out loud, right? Like, because the only tool we have right now is, is that is a, is strict punishment. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, when George Floyd is murdered, our only understanding is that his murderers now must be incarcerated for the rest of their lives. We don't have anything else. Mm-hmm. But if we're abolitionists, I, at some point we have to let that go. Like at some point we have to start like putting into other ways of, of doing, like we have to practice something else so that those other possibilities mm-hmm. will emerge. Whether that's rehabilitation. I don't know how that works. Yeah. I right, like, I don't know how that works, but also but what I'm saying is we do that in our, in our uh, lives and in our organizing communities, right? Like our only option is to fully lock someone out right. of that community for the rest of eternity, because we just don't have any other ways of protecting those who need to be protected and of, of, uh, repairing harm and of making people kind of, uh, aware of, and then like doing what they need to do to be back in community. We just don't have a lot of those models. And so, uh, I think people are trying to give us those models. Like Adrian Marie Brown has been talking about this a lot lately. Um, there are other folks who've been putting out these amazing videos around this and, and like talking about this largely in the context of, uh, like abuse, right? Like if somebody commits sexual abuse or, um, uh, or some kind of harm against someone, um, in your community, uh, like alternatives to calling the police. But I even want to drill down to like when harm happens at a meeting or in a conversation or in a relationship and people are, you know, say hurtful things or, do something that damages a relationship or whatever it is. Do we, cause I think we need to be able to do it from the smallest scale to the largest scale. Mm-hmm. And, and I, that's what I am so curious about. And I, and I feel even called in my regular life. Like I have, I have, I didn't have beef with people. Like I didn't have, I didn't understand having a nemesis or having like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, these like somebody who hated you until I got in movement work. Yeah. And that's crazy by the way. And I, right. And like since in movement work, I have had literally people that I have been like, Oh yeah, we don't, we don't mess with each other. Like, well, I can't, you know, we, we can't work together and like total fallings out with people. And what I want to do is be like, you know, fuck them. I'm not messing with them anymore. I'm done. And I'm like, um, uh, Mickey, um, you're not allowed to do that because this is literally your work in the world. Like, remember healing, resilience, remember that thing, community, right? Remember, you're all about the community. We got to like figure this out. And I've had to start to work on those kinds of relate. Some of those are healed, some of them are in process, um, and some of them haven't even started in process mm-hmm. yet. But I know that I got to get myself, I got to get myself right. Like, I know it's about me figuring that out at some point. Mm -hmm. And, and some of these are relationships where I was wronged. Mm -hmm. And I, but I still know that I got to figure this out. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I'm not talking about, I mean, I think we have to be very careful because sometimes when I, like if somebody says something like this, what people hear is if you were raped, you need to work this out with your rapist that I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Those I, and I have those kinds of situations in my life too, where somebody did some particular harms to me that I'm, 
No like, thanks. Yeah. I don't know. Right. Like, I don't know how I would work that out. And that is way on the back shelf for me right now. Cause I just like, like largely there are people I'm not in continuous community with. So I don't like need to mm-hmm. necessarily work mm-hmm. that out. That feels at least not right that, now. That, that life, does but feel like you know a distinction saying? though, right? I hear you saying that like right. p- people have a right to completely disconnect themselves with their yes. abuser. Um, that's this, yeah. this process isn't calling, isn't, isn't, um, uh, you know, um, denying them that right. Right. So like choosing to like not be in relationship with someone isn't the same as throwing away someone's humanity. Right. But, but right. it does feel, I mean, I feel like that is the tricky territory that you're naming, which is how do we, right. how do we, um, participate right in the restoration right, um, of people after harm has happened without replicating more violence and harm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you get to, if you are the one harmed, especially if it's one-sided, you know, there's some conflict where many people were hurt, like kind of all sides are hurt. But if you, if you're in a, if you're in an ish, in a situation where you were the one harmed, also, how do you move on whether or not it has anything to do with that person being restored, how do you do your own healing work within the community? So you're not sent away to heal. Cause not only do we send away the, you know, the person who did the harm, we often send away the person who needs the healing, right? They get ousted from the community too. Cause we don't know how to deal with, That's with right. that side That's either. Real. We, so we, we want to put that person away because they're, they're hurt and crying and, causing pain and debt. so we're not going to deal with and them no one either. gets what they need and we absolutely we have to deal with us with with how we deal with someone who has been harmed and how we do not want to hold it and hear it and so all of this is just so hard mm-hmm. and tricky and requires time and energy and emotions and right now even when we're like we already feel um so worn out and stressed out because we're in that constant like trauma state during a pandemic and a social uprising and all of that. I think this can feel like it takes even more time and energy to Mm -hmm. work through. Mm -hmm. Is that, I mean, I know that you're one of the designers of, of the daring compassion movement chaplaincy, right? A program of faith matters. Um, you describe that work as spiritual accompaniment, right? To social justice movements. But I'm actually thinking about it now as like spiritual accompaniment to these kinds of moments that we just described where harm happens. Mm -hmm. Is that one of the roles of a chaplain in the movement to help, folks navigate relationship, navigate harm, navigate repair and accountability in the moment? I think so. Like sometimes we talk about a movement chaplain being a vibe checker, you know, in the room, right? Like who's the one who's going, okay, I I'm feeling something in this meeting is, do we need to talk? Like what's happening? You know? So sometimes it's the person who's willing to slow everybody down Yes, we're planning an action that's happening in two days, but there's some funky stuff happening in the room. Yeah. Let's talk about it. You know, uh, whether that's a Zoom room or a real, you know, a real life room. And so sometimes that's where this person, whether you call it a movement chaplain or a healer or whatever, I don't really care what name people use. That's the name that feels right to me. But, um, 
is that person, is that role of accompaniment of care, of healing and resilience building in our social justice movements. Somebody needs to be holding that. Just like we have organizers, just like we have safety team, just like we have medics, right? We've got to hold all of these pieces. And one of those pieces is the spiritual, emotional, relational health of organizers, activists, and -hmm. leaders. Yeah, and you have me thinking about like in, in, in so many of these moments of conflict, right, that are just alive right now um, and for good reason, um, how helpful it would be to just call a movement chaplain in, right, to help um, mediate some of those moments or at least help like ground the, the moment, right, like with some kind of like mm-hmm. uh, under spiritual underpinning, right, that that this moment is a, a part of a larger moment, right? This act yeah. is a part of a larger pattern, right? Um, that how helpful it would be. And it's just making, it's also making me think about how um, so many, so much of our like spiritual institutions have been um, dismantled and deconstructed and how we're kind of missing that fascia of like, who do we go mm-hmm. to in conflict? What is the, um, um, the wisdom that we seek um, when shit goes sideways and who are the mm-hmm. people who have not just the capacity, but the skill to navigate the complexities of this moment, complexities across race and gender, um, and class and like all of the things. Right. And who is just tuned in to the spiritual nature of this work, the emotional nature of this work, right? People don't just change and work toward change because it's intellectually correct. Mm -hmm. Right. If it was just a matter of arguing factual information with people, I mean, we're in an age now where we don't, not everybody agrees on the factual information. I mean, I'm sure in many ways it's always been that way, but you know, um, even if we agree on the facts on the facts or the intellectual information, we, that's not enough for change, right? That this is, we have to realize that this is a spiritual, emotional endeavor, that this is soul work, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, in my mind, that's what movement chaplaincy is about is attending to the soul work that accompanies our intellectual work. Yeah. And that's often missing from our political work, the yeah. relative work. Um, How have, how have um, your sort of network and team of chaplains responded? Like, can you give us examples of like how they're showing up for this moment? Yeah. So uh, we have had for the last couple of months, um, a group of community care chaplains uh, that their information is on our website at faithmattersnetwork.org. And uh, really we've targeted activists, organizers, uh, spiritual leaders and community leaders who we know are holding our communities together right now. Um, and, and really, you know, at the forefront of our movements for social change and, you know, they need people to talk to like when you're holding all of that and you're experiencing not only your trauma, but the secondary trauma of the folks in your community, there's, 
you know, you need support. And so we assembled a team of folks to offer that support, um, really to anybody who wants it. And we've, uh, uh, interacted with folks in the U S and beyond who are interested in that support. And really largely that consists of these chaplains who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, um, religiously, um, experience wise, um, gender, sexuality, race. Um, and we even have people who can speak Spanish and Korean. And so trying to make it really accessible Mm -hmm. and open to folks. Um, and, and for the most part, it's been, you know, one-on-one talks, like 45 minutes of just somebody to talk to. Um, it's difficult because I think we're many of us are largely in, in, um, trauma mode. We're in survival mode and it's hard to pull out of that even for a moment to, to like go to a website, make an, like go to your calendar, make a, you know, figure out what the time is and make an appointment. That's actually pretty hard right now to do, um, (laughs) you know, and so it's been happening but I, I don't even think it's been happening to its full yeah. capacity because people are so in survival mode. And so there have been other ways pe- that our chaplains have shown up, right? Like some of these um, online um, kind of group places of grief mm-hmm. and connection. So uh, the naming the lost vigil, you know, being available for folks who might need to talk um, you know, while they're watching or while they're reading names of people lost to COVID-19. There was a day of collective grief that was um, held um, online, but held in Greensboro, North Mm. Carolina, and in Oakland, California, basically at the same time, led by teams in those two cities. But of course, because it was online, it was available to anyone. And they we're just there in the chat and, and letting people know, Hey, if you need to talk to somebody, we're here mm. and offering words of encouragement through that process that included music and poetry and reflection and, and those types of things. Yeah. This, so, you know, people appreciate someone there to just say, Hey, I see you. And I see that this is emotional and that th- this is difficult. And I'm here for that. I'm here to, I'm here to hold that space for you. And this feels like it's, it's part of like a larger culture shift towards community and community care and collective care. Cause I, I feel like one of the beautiful and hard things that have come out of the pandemic is like, is this deeper sense of interdependence, right? Because even while we know that the virus is impacting people disproportionately, we're also more aware that we are as vulnerable as the most vulnerable, Right. And we've we've Mm -hmm. seen sort of change emerge from that knowing networks of mutual aid directed at people who are most impacted Um, um, this sort of like and I know movement chaplaincy was sort of around before this moment. But that same sort of tending to relationship and conflict and community, a sense of connectedness and solidarity, even amidst physical distancing. Um, And I feel like that that culture is emerging obviously in the absence of systems that take care of us, right? Like we're seeing now, not that we didn't know that the system wasn't designed to take care of most of us, but we're seeing, I think in, um, uh, 
um, you know, in living color that um, our government, right, is not designed for us. Um, it's not yeah. designed for the people. It's designed, it's not designed for care. It's designed for capitalism, right? And I don't think we can deny yeah. that. And I think people know that we deserve better. So I'm curious, like, how do we, how do we harness, do you think, this, this, this emerging culture of care, this behavior of care, um, this relational care into a politics of care, right? Into structures mm -hmm. of care, into legislation of care, into, you know, um, God willing elected leaders <laughs> of care, <laughs> God, God forbid, right? right? How do we, how do we make this leap? Because I'm just like, I'm, I'm also like noticing what's coming, right? Where this next movement moment is an electoral moment. And I'm wondering, yeah. like, is there a way to transmute, to transform this energy into something that can tangibly move the election forward in the right direction? Yeah, you know, I think that those of us who actually believe that our, um, our, our freedom, our liberation is tied up in one another that actually believe that, um, you know, your survival is my survival and your thriving is my thriving, that those of us that actually believe that, because not everybody believes that, you know, so those of us who do, I think we have to live into it. We have to really, truly live into it more than we ever have. And I think, again, that happens in big and small ways, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yes, it's these networks of mutual aid and it's, um, you know, forming, like I have a mama squad. It's me and three of my friends who are moms and we are, you know, fairly local to each other. Um, and so we, like we're that support network for each other. We have a, you know, a, an ongoing chat stream that we, you know, share things big and small with each other. Um, when I lost my mom to COVID-19 and, and, uh, was away, you know, going through that process and, and dealing with that. When I came, I came home to a, a beautiful gift basket full of things that made me mm. feel known and seen and supported. And then weeks later when, um, my, um, friend Monica, my sister Monica in the same group lost her dad to COVID-19, we believe, uh, I dropped off the basket to her house. Right. And, and so it, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's this small group that like didn't form out of any, you know, there's no organization. There's yeah. no, um, you know, like formal thing. It's just the four of us said we are each other's people and we're going to support each other and be a group. Mm -hmm. Um, and just do that. Right. And so, so forming those little groups yes. too, um, supporting each other in whatever ways. So, uh, you know, doing things in your particular community, um, rearranging your life in particular ways, right. Whether it's supporting a local business that, you know, needs it right now, wearing your mask every time you're around other people, right. Like those kinds of things that we can just decide to do and actually live into, those of us who actually believe those things are important, 
we have to double down in doing them, even though we're weary. Yeah. Even if we feel like we're the only one in our little community. I mean, I live in a small southern rural town. People are not wearing masks. Oof. There's a lot of disbelief, right? A lot. There's a this is Trump country where I live. And so I'm often, you know, one of the few mask wearers. And I'm gonna keep doing it, even though it feels totally mm-hmm. futile. I am going mm-hmm. to do it. And so it's like we have to lean in. Um, knowing that, um, it, you know, it, it takes all of these things big and small. Um, and we just, we just got to keep doing it. Like we got to keep caring for each other in the ways that we can and understand that that's enough. Like whatever you can do today is enough. The choices you make that are, that are choices you didn't make six months ago are enough you know, and, and not to beat yourself up about the things that you can't change yet. Like if this year is not the year for you to join a local CSA, that's okay. Chill out. Do it next year. Like, I don't care. I totally, and it's so funny because in, um, you know, in a lot of ways, like we, it's kind of goes back to what we were saying before about like not knowing what a future without punishment, a future, right. Without, um, um, you know, structures of harm looks like because p- perhaps we're not practicing it at the micro level, at the relational level, right? And so, like, you know, I wonder, like, if in fact we can lean into, um, you know, building micro infrastructure within our local communities, um, communities of, you know, circles of care, squads of care, pods of care, <laughs> teams of whatever that, whatever mm-hmm. that um, technology is, you know, will that not reveal? you know, the future that we want to live into, um, that yeah. is one deeply rooted in care. And it's funny, you were saying like, it's not organized, but it, it does sound deeply organized. It sounds, um, mm-hmm. like we're organizing ourselves relationally. And it also sounds yeah. like we're organizing ourselves around a value, um, of interdependence. I feel like you, you kind of like put a line down when you said like, so, you know, do you believe that our well being and liberation is bound Um, or not. And if you do, then come with us, you know, let's, let's, let's be a certain way in community. Let's take care of ourselves in a certain way. And for those that don't believe in that, you know, organizing principle, um, that's fine. We don't need you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we at least have to work with the ones who do believe that, you know, and, and, you know, I will say this, this mama squad, um, with four of us, like we have plenty of differences. Um, like people would be shocked at some of the differences and, but we have a commitment to each other that is the base. Um, and so it is a place of practice for me, um, which is sometimes why I don't have energy for other places of Mm -hmm. practice. And that's okay. Um, it's okay for me. I like, I feel okay with it. And, you know, but it, I think that I'm going, that I learned things in that community of practice of just these, this four of us that then I'm able to, you know, use in other areas of my life. Yes. I love, I really love this pathway. Um, because I, I think you're right. It can feel really overwhelming to have to, um, 
to participate in the like figuring out the the next you know the next world um that we want to live in and to take on like the big macro structures the culture the politics the um but a part of transforming those big structures is how we transform the little structures the community mm-hmm. structures the That's the great. individual structure how we're transforming ourselves and our place in the whole um, and that feels really doable as I, I just hear you, like it makes me actually feel more hopeful. Like there's, there's a pathway, there are steps that we can take um, that don't feel like, you know, having to do the biggest lift, but that we know feed mm-hmm. into the big lift. Yeah. And knowing that, you know, those are actually important, like how we live our daily lives with the people that we know. Yes. You know, on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, we often make grandiose statements, right? Like if you're not doing this, you're not, you know, for this, right? You're not actually doing this. And, and I make those statements mm-hmm. too. Same. Like all the time, you know, I'm not like, yeah, I mean, we all do it. It's and not enough to do this. You should be doing, I do that all the time. Right. Right. Like, but it's our, but we also have to realize that everything we're doing isn't out in the open I mean, I just think about um, generationally what's changed in my family, right? Like my, from what I understand from my mom and my uncle telling me like their grandmother was very harsh, their mother and father, who I, who I adored and treated me like a little princess. My grandparents on that side were very loving and dear to me. My grandmother was pretty harsh, but my grandfather was, was very doting and you know, all of that, but they didn't, they didn't tell their kids they loved Mm them. Um, you know, my mother had a difficult time being affectionate with me. Um, and you know, was the one out of my mother and father who spanked me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, was the generation that was able to say, I'm not going to spank my children. I'm not going to hit them. Um, and had to work through my, my anger and my rage and struggled, especially with my first child. Because even though I had resolved not to hit her, I sure knew how to fly off the handle and right. yell and had to work through my issues with that, right? And, and, and learned and got better and, and, um, and changed, right? So this is now a generational thing that my children now grew up under a different understanding of, of punishment and of discipline and how to interact with children, Um, and with people in general, right? So my hope is that if they parent or, um, you know, interact with children in their lives, that they now have at least a new paradigm that isn't centered around Mm -hmm. hitting and even around yelling, even though they've seen me struggle, right? And so that's, you know, it's small. It's really, really small. It's, it's three children in a household. It's three people in the world, but it's a way of like, hopefully that's a little bit of change that then can impact the people that they know and the people that they know, know. And right. Like that's my hope is that it was worthwhile to do something like that. Mm So you know, I'm just saying we have to figure out how to do it on those scales, like small. And then right like that, my uh, commitment not to 
use physical violence and even verbal violence with my own children has impacted my work professionally as well. And what I'm, what I believe in and what I'm willing to do professionally and what I'm willing to put up with professionally, it changed my whole life. So it changed my work, which also impacts other people. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, sometimes we, we like, as it says, you know, we despise the small things and what happens if we actually focus, pull out of that. Yeah. We focus in on those small things while we're also doing the big things. We can't exclude one for the other. Well, and I think we've seen the consequences you know, that's of that, important. right? Like lots of people doing really right. big things and causing gr- a great deal of harm on a relational level. Um, and how easy it is to perform big things and make it look good on the surface when, you know, the inside um, is deeply toxic. So I just, I also hear you yeah. calling for like us to walk the talk. Like, how are you in relationship yeah. with yourself? How are you in relationship with the, the people that are closest to you, right? How are you in relationship with the people that you work with? Are you living into your political principles? Are you building the structures right. of care, right, that we're sort of dreaming into for the future on a, like, macro collective level? And if we're not doing those things, how, how, how can we possibly... Sort of like what you were saying in the beginning of this call about this is a practice of possibility. It's not like an execution of possibility. It's like, how are we practicing that every day with one another? Um, my last question for you is, is about spiritual sustenance. Mm. Like how, um, and about pleasure and joy. Like how do you... How do you sustain the work? Because I know you're in this for the long haul, Mickey. Like... You know, you like me, we're in the marathon, not the sprint. Yeah. Um, how do you sustain yourself? How do you keep going? How do you laugh and feel good and nourish your soul? I mean, I've had to give up uh, the idea that I can't play until I'm, till I've done enough, mm. right? Yeah. Till I've taken enough things off my to-do list because that never happens. And it's certainly not happening now um, at a time when I feel really, really slowed down by grief, um, by the conditions we're in. I mean, I am a true extrovert in that, you know, we always think extrovert is just somebody who's like loud and outgoing. And, but really when we talk about extroversion, it's that you get your energy from other people, from your people. And I can't, I don't have my people around me all the time. Like not in the ways I did before. And so uh, I, it, that, I mean, I'm suffering, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I, I have had to have a lot of grace for myself that I am slow and that things are going to slip through the cracks and that that is not an indicator of whether or not I deserve pleasure. That pleasure, in fact, and joy, in fact, is are not about whether or not I deserve them. Mm. And so I have just allowed myself pleasure, <laughs> you know, like, unapologetically. Uh, that, right. Like I can have orgasms whenever I want. Like I, if that means the middle of the day or in the morning, great. Yes. Like <laughs> orgasms all day and, long. Um, right. Like that's okay. And, um, I think like a lot of places have, uh, that sell, sex toys have said their sales have shot up during this time. 
And I'm like, absolutely. Like this is when you can like up your collection of self-pleasure items. Um, but also like tuning into myself about, um, like, um, what I'm doing for pleasure, right? Like for me, I get a lot of pleasure from food and I have zero problem with that. Um, but I just check in with myself about like, okay, what is, you know, am I only assigning food as pleasurable when it's like super sugary and, um, or whatever, like, is that because that's my weakness is sugar. And it's like, maybe I also treat myself with like super expensive raspberries or something, you know, like it doesn't always have to be the thing that, you know, like what I've associated with pleasure before. It's like pleasure Um, with self-awareness. Right. So I'm just trying to, to hold all of that complexity, um, and, and not be in like, not deny myself things because if anything, this has taught me that we aren't promised tomorrow. So it's, I'm not gonna, like, nobody's on their deathbed. Like, I wish I had gone on more diets, right? Like nobody does that. Like I want to die. If I'm going to die, I want to die having like experienced life and feeling good about a life well lived. And that means not denying myself a piece of cake. It means not (laughs) like waiting till Friday to get my vibrator out. Right. Like just do what I want to do when I want to do it for the most part, you know, like, are you having dance parties by yourself? Cause I am. And I think about you when I do (laughs) listen, y'all, we've had the most epic dance parties together, period. (laughs) So true. I dance all the, I mean, that is one of my happy things. Like I don't, I, I can't really make myself exercise for like, oh, I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to, you know, do an, I'm going to do two hours of exercise every day. Like I just, I love, I, I, I just want to sweat and I want to dance floor and I want to gyrate <laughs> and I want to move my hips and I want to, you know, like I am just going to do yeah. all of that and do the, do the routines or with the teachers that I just happen yeah. to like, and I'm not. I'm not monitoring calories burned or what. No, I'm just (laughs) like going to do it because I want to do it, you know? And like, I'm going to wear this, you know, cute sports bra and put glitter on. And even if nobody's going to see me, you know, like I'm going to do all those things because I'm doing it for me. And (laughs) so that's, those are the kinds of things. That I I'm love doing. it. Mickey, I, I just want to say, like, you're one of those people in my life that teaches me equally how to, like, have, like, radical, ecstatic experiences of joy and pleasure <laughs> while also teaching me how to do, like, really hard, messy stuff. I, I just, like, am so grateful that you can hold space for those two extremes um, inside of our relationship and inside of our friendship. And you're the person I go to when I don't know. When I'm mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't know what's right here. I don't know what to, I don't think I know what I did here. I just want to acknowledge you for the way in which you model that chaplaincy. You model the, the, um, the capacity to hold space for the fullness of our humanity. And for that, I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. That is deeply meaningful for me to hear. And I think we don't often tell each other what we mean to each other, um, And so that is so precious to me to have that um, said to me directly while I'm alive (laughs) and can hear it and 
I'll so, keep saying it. you know, thank you. For that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it feels good to know that I am living into the work that I feel called to and, and feel made for. Um, and so I thank you for that. Thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to practice brave space, to risk mistakes, to call each other to more truth, to admit when we don't know and to love each other into accountability. Only then can we heal the wounds and build the future that we all deserve. Find Mickey on Twitter at I am Mickey Jones. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. And share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.